Hello and welcome to Seniors Studio, hosted by me, Ben Jacobs of Seniors Capital. With this podcast, we aim to give listeners inside access to the best and brightest investors in the crypto asset management industry. In each episode, I will chat with a leading crypto and blockchain venture fund or hedge fund manager as we explore the complexities of operating an investment fund at the bleeding edge of innovation. In this episode, I sit down with Homer Sun, managing partner of Animoca Capital. Following an illustrious career as a CIO of Morgan Stanley's private equity business in Asia, Homer took the Web3 plunge to launch Animoca's first growth equity fund. Now at Animoca Capital, Homer is investing in category-defining blockchain-related businesses three to four years before a potential IPO or strategic acquisition. Let's get into it. Ben Jacobs is a partner at Seniors Capital Management. All views expressed by Ben and the guests of this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Seniors Capital Management. Guests and the host may maintain positions in the assets and funds discussed in this podcast. You should not treat any opinion expressed by anyone on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of their personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this edition of the Senior Studio. I am your faithful bull market, bear market host, Ben Jacobs of Senior Capital. As you guys know, with this podcast, we love to meet crypto's best and brightest. And historically, we've met with a lot of liquid token hedge fund managers and early stage investors. And I think today's guest will provide a different perspective that we haven't quite hit on yet at Senior Studio, but I think it'll be you know, invaluable to the audience to, to hear what our guest has to. So without further ado, I'd love to introduce everyone to Homer Sun of Animoca. How's it going, Homer? Great, Ben. Terrific to be here with you today. Yeah, I, I'm excited to have you. We, I, I heard you speak on a panel in Singapore, but I don't think we had the opportunity to meet. And then we met back in New York in the fall and, and have kept loosely in touch. Glad we could do this. And as we were just talking before we hit the record button, you were just in the U.S. and now you're all the way back in Hong Kong. So how's how are you feeling after all that travel? Are you still feeling good about this right now? I've been doing the jet lag thing for for quite a bit, so surviving. Nice. Well, I think that's a good segue. So would love for you to introduce yourself to the audience. Like, wh- where are you from? What's your background? And everything that led you up to your current position now at Animoca. Sure, Ben. So, you know, I did actually grow up in, in the U.S., but it decided early on as a teenager that I really wanted to make my career in Asia. I had visited China in the late 80s when most of the population actually was below the poverty line. And I decided I wanted to be a part of making a difference about that. And so I, I studied chemical engineering in college, went straight to law school, actually, because uh, I thought that would be the fastest way to kind of get to my goal of getting to Asia. And then I started my career as a young M&A lawyer at a firm called Simpson Thatcher. And I found myself working in Hong Kong with Simpson Thatcher by the late 90s. And so, and I guess I should also say, by the way, if your name happens to be Homer, like working at a firm called Simpson is not probably the smartest career decision. But, you know, I moved on from that. I moved on from law to finance when I joined Morgan Stanley in 2000. And I actually ended up spending 20 years at Morgan Stanley. For most of that, I was the CIO of a, a private equity business under our asset management division called Morgan Stanley Private Equity Asia. It was about a $4 billion AUM fund. We focused on growth and buyout investments in the region. 
and we made about 60 investments across three funds during my time. But you know, after after 20 years spent, <clears throat> excuse me, I really wanted to pursue something a little bit more entrepreneurial. And that's when Yatsu, who is the chairman and founder of Animoca Brands, kind of comes into the picture. Maybe maybe it makes sense just to talk a little bit about Animoca Brands at this juncture, just in terms of the background of, of the firm and and what they do and you know what their kind of key businesses are. You know, Animoca Brands actually started as a, a mobile gaming business back in 2009. It was really at a time when freemium games were kind of developing in Asia and being exported globally. The team hooked up with a group of guys in 2017 in Vancouver, and they wanted to do something kind of novel. For the first time, they wanted to really embody culture in a digital format that could be owned. And what they ended up creating was the ERC-721 standard that remains today, and they and they created CryptoKitties. And that team went on from Vancouver, went on to become Dapper Labs. And the team led by Yad at Animoca decided that, look, this the power of digital ownership when applied to the gaming realm, which is the core operating business, is so powerful that if it, we can really allow gamers to actually own the 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 the, the in-game items is enabled by blockchain. And so after that, Animoca Brands, you know, never looked back from focusing really on blockchain games. And so today the core operating business does revolve around for Animoca Brands, does revolve around gaming and also includes education, music, and other forms of entertainment. Gaming is, of course, today, you know, as you know, bigger than Hollywood and music combined. And half of that market is actually in-game items, like about $100 billion today. I think if you ask any gamer for the same game, would you rather own the asset and be able to sell it later? Or would you rather just play, use the asset and give it back to the game after you're done playing? Of course, they would rather own the asset. And 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 so I think, you know, the good news today is that we've figured out in this industry kind of play to earn with some ups and downs. I think the, the fun to play is on the horizon. There are about 100 games launching in 2024. And Animoca Brands is really a big, the operating business is a really big part of, of you know, driving that ecosystem. I guess, you know, maybe then the second core pillar of Animoca Brands really, you know, which is adjacent to the operating business really uh, falls into the category of advisory and services. And so this is really, you know, helping Web3, providing Web3-related services such as, you know, token advisory, you know, token launching and listing support, DAO design, market making, helping Web3 companies pivot from Web2 to Web3, or sorry, Web2 companies pivot to, to Web3 in terms of the gaming space. It's really kind of a full suite of digital asset capabilities that Animoca has provided and is providing to its partners in, in the ecosystem. And then finally, I guess the last and third pillar of Animoca is, is asset management. And that includes both direct investments made from the balance sheet, as well as externally raised funds. And that's sort of where, you know, I come into the picture and, and really kind of brings me back to a hike that I was on in the spring of 2022 with my good friend Yatsu, who is the, the chairman and founder of Animoca Brands. And really on that hike, we kind of conceived this idea of Animoca Capital. You know, Animoca Brands at the time even though as a big operating business, had become equally well-known and remains equally well-known for being a very prolific investor. In fact, they're often ranked as the most prolific investor in blockchain in the world. They today have hundreds and hundreds, over nearly 500 early stage kind of Web3 portfolio companies, roughly half infrastructure, half content. 
But you know, by the spring of 2022, some of those companies had actually gotten really large, and yet really had a desire to raise external capital to do what it was getting harder to do off balance sheet, where they were making small investments in early stage companies, but to really invest in later stage companies, whether follow-ons or other opportunities. And 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 I think they also, as a team, really wanted to kind of professionalize their the, the investing, especially in that category. And Yat's words were to me, you know, you're the only person who I kind of both know and, and trust to manage as a skill to kind of to, to manage a growth fund alongside Animoca. And I guess, you know, on, on this journey, the first thing I really recognize someone who works, who's been in this industry a long time, GPs are, are really fragile. And, and Yad and I really had something very special in, a, in, a, in our relationship. It's, a, it's a, a very long-term relationship, both with deep levels of trust, with the real, but with a really natural kind of business synergy. He had Yad, of course, has built a global leader in, in Web3 that has tremendous influence and reach in the ecosystem. And, and you know, I had deep experience as a private equity investor managing institutional capital for fiduciaries, as it, sorry, rather as a fiduciary, really, for LPs. And so, you know, I thought about it for a number of months. And ultimately, I guess Ben came to a couple of key conclusions. I mean, first, it was clear to me, observing my own kids, that our physical and digital lives are going to increasingly intertwine. And in that context, Yats really focus, and he's been talking about this with me for many, many, many years, focus on digital property rights, really resonated with me as someone who really had a front row seat to what property rights did in the real world, in China specifically, where from the first time I visited in 1988, to today, over 800 million people have been lifted out of poverty, and a lot of that is driven and and you know based on the fact of real world property rights being available for the first time. I also, secondly, spent most of my career carrying a name card where the two most important words on my card was never Homer's son; it was always Morgan Stanley. And I recognized early on that. Um, Having this Animoca brand, um, Animoca's capital, the name on the door, would really represent important, differentiated access and 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 buy side discussions we could have, and that's definitively proved to be the case in ways exceeding our expectations originally. And finally, you know, I came to appreciate that you know almost all the GPs you mentioned this Ben at the outset, most most folks are are in the venture space. It makes a lot of sense given the industry is quite nascent. But I, I also think that there are a growing number of kind of later stage companies that have will give investors exposure to blockchain technology and what it's doing, but also with less volatility, less risk into an extraordinary vintage and hopefully with uh, a little bit more you know visibility on DPI ultimately given the stage of the investment. And so, so basically in summary, in late 2022, after a number of months of discussion, Animoca Capital was formed. It's a joint venture between Animoca Brands and me and my kind of personal capacity. I'm honored to be joined on the team in our senior ranks by the CEO of Animoca Brands, Robbie Young. Robbie is based in London, but like me, importantly, has over 25 years of experience. He's been an entrepreneur in technology, media, and telecom. And really, he's been with working with Yacht since the inception of Animoca Brands, focusing more on, on investing. And now that Animoca is going to be doing a little bit less off its balance sheet, focusing on you know capital invested you know, through third, third, third-party race vehicles, Robbie's able now to spend a considerable amount of his time with me as my partner 
overseeing our business. And today we've got about 10 professionals and offices in Hong Kong, London, and New York. Amazing. So, so many different threads this conversation could go on. But first, I wanted to just drill in on what does investing at the growth stage mean in practice? How are you evaluating companies at that stage? And naturally, like, you know, you think IPO, M&A market, but that hasn't, there haven't been many exits, quote, in crypto that aren't token related. There's Coinbase, there are the miners, you know, you could say MicroStrategy, and now we saw Circle file its S1. So first, would love to hear, you know, how you evaluate companies at that growth stage and like, do you consider that Series B onwards? And then talk to me about the, the market for exit opportunities in blockchain and crypto. Sure. Now, maybe I can just provide some context, Ben, from sort of my own career investing really in the early days in Asia, back in, in the early 2000s. It feels actually very similar to where the blockchain kind of industry is today. It, it was a bit of Wild West sometimes. There were new companies that were figuring things out amidst a very fluid backdrop. Industries were highly, highly fragmented. And so, you know, what we did you know, when I was CIO at Morgan Stanley Private Equity Asia, was really invest early on in the kind of the basic industries that were centered around the growth of consumption. So uh, think milk, think insurance, think cement, really um, some very natural and, and what felt to us like quite obvious theses at the time, which panned out to be, you know, tremendously successful. Now, we went on to see some of the key leaders in different industries ultimately gain access to, in the case of an IPO, gain access to the $100 trillion global equity markets. And from there, they were able to really further deepen their moats, consolidate share, market share, and drive fragmented industries to kind of more consolidated and more mature market structures. And you know, in the early 2000s, there weren't a lot of investors betting on the growth of consumption in Asia. But those of us who did it built you know, very successful track records. Now, in the world of blockchain, you know, we are seeing a very similar scenario. A lot of early stage characteristics. We're definitely seeing some wild west behavior. We'll probably continue to as the regulations gradually seek to catch up. And it's naturally still very early days with, I think, digital asset ownership globally less than 5% of the world's population. But you know, at the same time, we are seeing in the growth space that we're focused on, You know, and I'll be talking about this real market leadership developing, positioning as as a clear leader that is poised to be to be that leader for, for a long period of time where there's less kind of fluidity in what's happening in that segment of the market. And it's really exactly at a time like this that when there are fewer investors focusing on a space that, you know, understanding this the impact of this transformative technology is going to be extremely interesting from a return perspective. I suppose I suppose anyone who is kind of investing in this area likely has a thesis related to kind of composable systems that will enable permissionless ownership of value and transfers of value and having a huge impact on um, cross-border payments, uh, in-game items, physical infrastructure, supply chain management, insurance, myriad other areas. We talk about, you know, in this industry, diving into rabbit holes, and and it really does take that sometimes to kind of gain fluency with all the moving pieces at, you know, the layer one, layer two, the protocol layers. But but maybe when you abstract away from that, moving all the moving pieces of complexity at that base layer, for an investor who hasn't 
gone so deep into the rabbit hole. I'm talking about an allocator and has prom but sees promise in this new technology. I suppose the kind of the first rightfully asked question many are saying is, okay, look, I get the dream. It seems interesting. Blockchain is a great solution. But what exactly is the problem that the solution is meant to solve, right? And on this question, the way we think about it and, and sort of and it relates to the growth thesis is really one of the most important indicators of what where the puck is going, if you will, within blockchain is what the global incumbents are doing. If you look today, over half of the Fortune 100 companies have projects going on related to blockchain. I mean, look at one of the largest companies in the world, Microsoft. It takes a lot to move a $3 trillion market cap business. What is the biggest investment made in the history of Microsoft? It's of Activision, the gaming business. If you look at the press release on Activision when the deal was announced some time ago, in the very first paragraph, you'll see the word metaverse. So Microsoft sees a future where digital assets will be owned in, in digital realms. You see Nike and Starbucks building brand loyalty programs today and really redefining their customer relationships. And so, you know, when you think about owning a part of a brand, you're going to think about that brand differently. It's just like how you might approach a kitchen remodel if you own your home versus if you rent your home, right? And so, and there are, of course, a lot of corporates that are also using blockchain of albeit in permission context often right now, across a wide swath of areas, you know, Allianz for insurance, Porsche for supply chain provenance, Goldman Sachs selling bond deals on blockchain or Walmart to manage logistics. So, you know, what does this tell us about the questions that investors are asking? What, you know, what is the problem that blockchain is meant to solve? Well, it is solving many real world problems behind the scenes right now. And it's just like, it feels like, you know, over a decade ago, before ChatGPT caught all of our intention, uh, kind of our attention, AI was kind of quietly percolating in the background. It was making our cars smarter. It was making our phones smarter. It was making our e-commerce shopping carts smarter. And blockchain is now very similarly percolating in the background across a broad range of industries. However, the superpower behind blockchain that super is is extremely exciting is open source and composability, right? And so. If not, and we look beyond what the global incumbents are doing. You see what some of the smartest Web2 developers in the world are doing. They're voting with their most precious resources, their time and their careers, and really diving into this career, into, into this space. And so now we get to sort of, you know, I'm sort of kind of giving some context from the standpoint, perhaps, of, you know, many discussions uh, I've had with allocators around the world and how they're thinking about this question. And and so now the investor is saying, okay, maybe we should have some exposure to blockchain technology, but you know, how, where, where should I invest? Now there are a lot of very, very smart VCs investing at the protocol layer, taking directional bets on questions around, I don't know, the layer one wars, the layer two wars, you know, functions that can be op optimized in decentralized systems, whether it's finance or physical infrastructure or identity or storage. But, you know, in that realm in the layer one and layer two kind of an application layers in the industry, there still remains naturally quite a bit of uncertainty. And and that's where, you know, venture firms will, will will make their returns. But you also, if you couple that with some token exposure, often with very massive volatility. So you're kind of multiplying, you know, high level of uncertainty with massive volatility. Lots of lots of great returns that lie in that kind of realm. But I guess we're looking to answer 
a less volatile and lower risk question for investors. Um, we sort of see, you know, really interesting businesses with exposure to blockchain that comfortably underwrite to a three to five X. It's in mean, the vintage is is phenomenal. And, you know, based on where the ecosystem is vaulted today, you know, who are these companies that are positioned to be long-term leaders kind of across this wide swath of, of industries? A lot of them, as I'll talk about, are, are kind of infrastructure businesses, right? That are that are kind of sitting across all the potential applications and sitting on top of all the various, you know, moving parts at the, you know, layer one, layer two level. It's just sort of, I mean, using my my China analogy, Ben, back in the early two thousands, we focused on the basics, you know, consumer brands, finance, financial services, infrastructure basic building blocks. And as growth investors at the time, we weren't ready to be, wasn't, didn't make sense to be looking at, I don't know, biomedical research or dentistry clinics or, you know, school chains. Uh, there were, those were opportunities for VCs, but the growth opportunity was really identifying the corporates that really hadn't been matured by that time. So I guess, you know, to specifically the companies, a lot of investors ask, you know, are there really enough a, what are growth companies? B, you know, it's your question. Are there really enough companies to invest in in this space? And I guess, you know, for a fund looking to build a portfolio of 15 or so companies across the next, you know, four years or so, I'd say unequivocally, yes. As I said, many of the companies we're looking at are in the infrastructure space. And so we're working with leaders in custody, prime brokerage, payments, stable coins, services like compliance analytics, Tax and accounting is reporting, staking, node operations, oracles, gaming platforms. And so each of these areas has, you know, numerous CEOs to get to know, business models to, to understand. And really this is where the power of of the Animoca card really comes in and is is really quite differentiated. I mean, many, many of the leading companies that I've seen this a lot in my career. Many of the leading kind of growth companies, the more mature companies in this space, they've raised a lot of money. They don't necessarily need external capital right now. Their cap tables are, are, are otherwise closed. And it really is the job of a growth equity investor to earn the right to invest you know, in, in, in ways naturally we believe are below, at valuations we believe are below economic value. And, and this is you know, kind of very much the approach we take at Animoca Capital. Now, we are looking fundamentally to be very strategic as as investors in this space. Some of the key areas of strategic differentiation we bring on the buy side are naturally we have a nearly 500 company portfolio at Animoca, and you know there are many opportunities to work with leading companies in this space, whether as partners or as customers, and and so that's been a very powerful source of differentiation. And the other. I mentioned we have, you know, a footprint in Hong Kong where I happen to be today. I spent a lot of my time in the U.S. as well. But, you know, having kind of deep connectivity in this part of the world is also, you know, very helpful because some of because of some of the regulatory disparities that have emerged between markets like the United States and places like Hong Kong. CEOs of global businesses are really looking for aligned, influential partners who can really be on the ground in some of these key markets where they're trying to grow their businesses in. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm fortunately need to keep my conversation a little bit no names right now, pending our first close. But one of the companies, you know, I've been working with as an example, Ben, has, you know, a cap table that's very much closed. They've got, you know, they're funded for the next four or five years. But we developed some strategic nexus around working with the Animoca brand's portfolio, developed a lot of leads, developing kind of a package of their solution for Animoca brand's portfolio companies. And on the back of that, 
we've gotten access to you know a, a tremendous amount of diligence and, and some really interesting opportunities on the secondary side. But that's you know heavily diligence. Another investor, another major company I was actually just speaking to last night has told us like everyone's knocking on our door. Like we are, we, we definitely are not you know don't need any capital and but we you know we're we're willing to talk to you guys because we really want to have help in Hong Kong. We really believe Hong Kong is going to be a long term leader in the digital asset space, and it's really important to us to have a partner who's actually on the ground. And so those are some of the. Some of the, you know, kind of, I guess the backdrop for how we think about kind of the growth equity opportunity set. One of the most important criteria we look at early on is a company's positioning. Okay. If we're into investing into a business with a view to a future IPO or a strategic takeout, it really needs to have a very defendable positioning thesis. It has to be a clear leader in a definable sector. You know, I know from experience that public and strategic M&A markets actually can be shut for really long periods of time, and they have been shut for, for a couple, for a number of years in this recent cycle. And when they do open, you need to be really, if you're an owner of a private portfolio, you need to be kind of first in line to, to get out, right, to, to go public or to get acquired. And usually that relates to having, you know, and being a number one player in a space. So positioning really, really core. The other kind of big, important baseline consideration, of course, is the quality of the management team. We spend a lot of time with with teams. You know, the CEO is saying contradictory things about details about the business when we drill, we drill in, or are they saying different things from the other management team members? You know, how does their strategy stack up alongside all the other peers that we're talking to in the, in the space? And then the other really natural one, of course, is is regulation. Is there a lot of regulatory uncertainty based on how? This company has operated in the past. Perhaps is there a regulatory liability maybe down the road, or, or are there you know do you need some stars to align for it to really have clarity from a regulatory standpoint in the space it's in? I mean, exchanges, for instance, is a really natural and obvious area that that would be an issue. And you know, do we need some things to happen for us to have a successful exit? And that you know will 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 color how we think about it. And then I guess the last bucket, probably Ben, is really just getting into underwriting, right? You underwrite a set of forecasts. I always tell my team that we need to live with and really own our base case forecast. And so in for the next, you know, four or five, six years. And so a growth stage business, unlike maybe some earlier stage venture businesses, natural will have at least a historical track record that you can look at. And now kind of hopefully merging out of the crypto winter, we've seen how businesses have performed even when the markets have really you know, trailed off. And so you have some historical data, data to work with. We spent a lot of time triangulating management inputs, a lot of benchmarking. And, you know, for instance, you might benchmark to a Web2 SaaS business at a similar stage of total revenue. You know, what was happening with their revenue per client in terms of the trends? What was happening in terms of their churn? You know, how, how did they, you know, how, how, was, how was the conversion in the, you know, net dollar retention on, on contracts? When looking at some of these kind of benchmarks, or it might be looking at, you know, for gaming related business, how did mobile games at this stage of development, how did they tier into different levels of, you know, total size in terms of, you know, the the big franchises in gaming? How should we think about percentages for the hits that need to come for a company in that space to be successful? So, and then finally, I guess overall of it, we do a lot of interviews. We do a tremendous amount of interviews. It's actually today almost impossible to find any kind of mature Web3 company that doesn't touch the portfolio that Animoca Brands have. So it's almost 500 company portfolio. So we have a lot of very natural 
insights that we can get in kind of internally, if you will, from from the portfolio comes. And then we also do a lot of interviews outside of that to really ultimately triangulate and think about, you know, building that base case, really owning that base case and underwriting that for, you know, for what we, again, we think is going to be a pretty extraordinary vintage. So how does Animoca think about decentralized projects and projects that have a token component to them? You could, you look at like a, a Uniswap, which is kind of the category king of the decentralized exchange vertical. There's Uniswap Labs that has raised a lot of money, and then there's also the Uni Token. How do you think about tokens? How do you think about where value accrues to a, an entity or to a related a token? I, I'm curious because you guys kind of sit at the blend between traditional equity investing and crypto, which is kind of a moderate rebellion to the traditional corporation structure? Yeah. I, so I, I would say that Animoca Brands itself is, you know, very deep in, in investing in, in at the token layer and, you know, very active advising on, you know, token design and, and the such. And I guess for us at Animoca Capital, we definitely have a pretty strong bias, I suppose, towards equity. I mean, we will consider a token project if the company is a clear leader, again, back to the positioning point. But also, we need to make sure that a token really is highly, highly liquid. For instance, if a token has as perps, that's a good indication that there's a baseline of liquidity. You can hedge it if you need to or want to. But it's going to be kind of a little bit more of the exception rather than the norm for us. And we know what you're letting do. It, it does. It does mean that there are a number of projects that you know we might not be able to pursue because of you know they're really have represented their the economic opportunity set really ultimately through a token. But there are more than enough companies where equity is the main way to, to get invested. And, and we also think it's important in a growth portfolio not to expose our, our LPs to too much volatility if you can avoid it. There are some scenarios where companies have both equity, as you alluded to, as well as tokens at play. And that there, there you really have to you know get into white papers, look at the token design, understand ultimately you know how the cash flows and the, the 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 revenues of the business, for instance, are are really represented and captured economically. And you know there are some businesses, for instance, who have equity representation, but they also have a token alongside it. And that token might be structured a little bit the way you know Roblox, Roblox rather uh, kind of structured Roblox. So it's a it's that's a company that's already been approved by the SEC is public company, but they have kind of a a token in their ecosystem that has you know kind of limited rights over the overlying economics of the business, but has real value. And so there we, again, we really get into understanding, you know, token design, but, but the way we think about the opportunity set and the, and the exposure that we want to be providing, we are overall a little bit more focused on equity, but we'll look at tokens from time to time. All right. That makes sense. I wanted to ask you, so you came from an illustrious career at Morgan Stanley. You've, you know, been in the same room as successful executives across industries, US, Asia, I'm sure everywhere in between. What's the sentiment like towards crypto right now among that leadership? Do they still laugh at blockchain or are they, you know, actually doing the work to learn and like 
are they like building teams? Are they allocating capital? Like, are they interested in acquiring businesses? I, I guess, how is the C-suite outside of crypto thinking about crypto currently? I would say that for for many, you know, I alluded to the fact that you know today over half of the Fortune 100 has projects going on on blockchain specifically, maybe you know adjacent to crypto, but you know, but I would say the folks that I speak to are, you know, kind of well aware of the developments. There is a shiny new object in the room called AI, which is, you know, has gotten the focus of a lot of, you know, key executives. So even if they find blockchain really interesting, it's all about priorities. And so I suppose for for most of the folks I'm speaking to, kind of the direction of traffic is really clear. The speed of traffic is a little less clear. And so they are you know, taking their time to kind of to 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 build up and hedge bets. Naturally, the you know pretty significant levels of of volatility in the industry doesn't help to you know it doesn't help with long term planning, especially if you you know given what's happened in the last couple of years. And so I I would say right now it's sort of curious, you know, interested, but you know maybe not necessarily the top priority. And you know we're seeing that reflect in some of the businesses we're talking to in terms of, you know, as, as investee companies in the duration of sales cycles, right? You might be talking to these big C, the, you know, C-suite about projects they wanted to build, but it just sort of, these things lose a little bit, little, little bit of steam for a period of time when the markets are down or when, you know, Gary Gensler says things that, you know, makes their boards a little bit frightful and, you know, fearful. And so, but I, I would say that, you know, definitely one of the areas we're seeing a lot of really interesting, you know, from a global perspective, a lot of very interesting development I get asked about a lot is, you know, here where I am today, again, in Hong Kong, right? I think, and that's really from a regulatory standpoint and a regulatory posture. I, you know, I, I for the decades I've spent kind of, you know, investing in Asia and, and, and focusing on, on what happens in China specifically, it's taught me really to think about and look at really the underlying kind of national and geopolitical rationales behind a policy is to kind of really assess whether that policy is legs over the long term. And today, so when the most senior leader here in Hong Kong steps on the stage and talks about Hong Kong welcoming Web3, standing right next to him is the most senior guy from the Chinese government kind of who oversees Hong Kong. So this is like shoulder to shoulder sort of saying, we support Hong Kong. Now, then the natural next question a lot of people ask is, wait a second, doesn't China like disallow its its citizens to trade crypto? So you know, how does that how does that work? How, how does it make sense that they're promoting it on the one hand in this little place, but they're banning it for the rest of the country? It, but it's actually, you know, if you understand, you know, the, the role of Hong Kong in the world, it's actually not at all dissimilar to the the ability of a Chinese citizen today to say own, I don't know, Apple stock. I mean, you can't actually buy it directly, but if you have offshore funds, you can do it through Hong Kong. You know, Hong Kong has kind of become and remains, you know, that sort of offshore financial center. And it is today one of the big four financial centers alongside New York, London, and, and Tokyo. So, you know, that's kind of that international facing rule that Hong Kong always have that's different than, you know, say Shanghai. And so, the and then on top of that, Hong Kong really does also have world-class regulatory infrastructure, regulators that have decades of experience overseeing, I mean, what is today the third most liquid equity market in the world. And so in that really provides some of the scaffolding to kind of manage this new asset class and kind of this international standard rule of law is also very important. And so 
when we go deeper to look at that underlying rationale for why China is sort of putting putting Hong Kong out there to be sort of a global leader in digital assets, you see um, behind that really you know deep interest from the Chinese government in the space. There is there are blockchain papers at you know senior level policy papers. There are blockchain projects, permissioned projects going on in the country today, whether with municipalities or hospitals, core systems, and so. Hong Kong becomes a, a natural kind of extension of that experimentation, but but you know finally I think you know if you look at sort of what's happened with the Ukraine war and and how that's highlighted to many countries around the world the manner through which payment rails like SWIFT can be weaponized, I think there's also a little bit of geopolitical rationale behind all of this to kind of promote payment rails that are kind of outside of conventional fiat based you know rails today and so. For all these reasons, I, I strongly believe, you know, Hong Kong will be a really important global center for digital assets. You know, I, I think, you know, I was admitted to the New York bar back in the day and, you know, I, I know enough about, you know, what's happening in my home market in the US to be, you know, to to be dangerous, I suppose. I mean, you know, the Bitcoin ETF approval notwithstanding, I think a lot of global CEOs today who have global businesses are, you know, really keen to 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 build overseas. Often they started in a place like Europe or the US. Where there is the deepest sort of maturation, I would say, of companies and, and management teams, and you know, I sat on global operating committees at Morgan Stanley. It can be hard to even you know at, at a big company like that to to do things internationally sometimes. And so think about being a you know a a young blockchain company and and you know facing that task. And so that's for us a really important role we can play in you know helping helping companies grow. In, in places like Asia and also in Europe as well. My partner, Robbie, being based deeply connected in London. And maybe just one last point is I'm you know, just thinking about Asia and, and some of the things we're seeing out here in particular. You asked about, you know, what are the what are the what are the big corporates and C suite folks doing? One of the really interesting realms that we've seen development that's unique here in Asia really is coming back to the gaming sector. So today actually the two Highest ARPU markets in the world are Japan and Korea within the gaming sphere. And we are now seeing, having spent some time with some of the big studios, the AAA game studios, that is, you know, the, the Segas, the Bandai Namcos of the world, talking to them, there is a real concerted drive and effort to, to, to really focus on, you know, developing blockchain games. It's a different technology architecture they have to navigate. But these are franchises that fundamentally really get how to create, you know, fun to play, not just play to earn. And so that also within the, that segment, you know, back to some of what the original kind of DNA of Animoca brands, that segment holds a lot of, you know, interesting promise in, in the kind of the big multinational corporate space in terms of what AAA game studios are now doing and recognizing that even though it might not necessarily be in their, you know, in their most optimized financial interest, that the gamers are going to really, over time, really want and demand, you know, having that fundamental digital property ownership of, of assets. Yeah, I think we've seen a number of, you know, funds and GPs highlight gaming as, you know, this huge growth category. And I think there were a lot of experiments done in the crypto gaming space like play to earn and Haxi, and now there's this next wave of you know better studio quality type games coming to market that are you know potentially on chain or incorporating digital assets in the the ecosystem however i think these big 
gaming studios, the Nintendos, the Segas, the Activisions, all of those, the the big unlock will, will be when they actually start incorporating blockchain and, and digital assets into their games and their ecosystems and their marketplaces. And it seems like they're they're all looking there. And I'm sure Anim- Animoca's tip of the spear helping guide some of those big players towards that more crypto native vision. Yeah, and I, you know, I think it. I think some of those, some of those transitions with those big studios, you know, they, the, 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 the kind of the senior executives I talk about often refer to their legal departments and their, you know, their focus on protecting their IP. You know, once you set foot in the true open blockchain, and naturally, it is an intensely gladiatorial place. You know, besides attack vectors, there's a lot of questions that they have about the ability to protect their IP. And so I think what we'll probably see for some of these bigger AAA game studios from places like Japan and Korea in the, in the near term, kind of as a bridge, is more permissioned context. So, you know, as a gamer before, I couldn't get eight bucks for the sword at the end of it, at the end of the, you know, if I stopped playing the game, but now I can, but it might be just within the, I don't know, the Sega ecosystem for now, right? But they're all built ultimately to, you know, transition to a fully crypto native space over time. But we see that as a as a bridge, you know, in this realm in, in any event. Got it. That's great. Well, Homer, you've been a, a fire hose of info. I want to make sure that we reserve a little bit of, of time at the end here to just touch on some of your spiciest takes. Just something that you, know, you feel like people are maybe looking in one direction, but you see a, a different direction. So, what is your spiciest take inside of crypto and blockchain right now? You know, I, I think a lot of, you know, we sit on a lot of these panels and people often ask, okay, what's your bet on, you know, what is really going to be the big kind of breakout moment for, for crypto, right? And, you know, the kind of a chat GBT like moment. I, I talked about this very gradual, you know, massive corporates kind of moving into blockchain projects, but my vote is going to be know how spicy this is, but my vote is going to be like a Pokemon Go type event. I think that there's going to be a really interesting game that captures the attention. It's going to likely be, you know, through a AAA game studio, a lot of indie game studios. So that's, I guess, you know, my vote from within, within inside of crypto. Awesome. Yeah. I, I feel like Apple Vision Pro may have been a watershed moment for the introduction of AR. And I think there's Definitely going to be a world where people are using their cell phones and capturing, you know, assets or converting images into NFTs and things of that nature. So I I think that's for sure on the horizon. How about flipping it outside of crypto? You know, could be something innocuous, could be, you know, perspective on AI or tech. What is your spiciest, most contrarian take outside of crypto? I, I, my, just maybe, maybe lining back up to what my comments about the, the strength of the kind of drivers behind policy support in Hong Kong for Web3. I think, I think Hong Kong is going to beat Singapore as, as kind of the place for, you know, digital asset, you know, manage, you know, asset management and, and, you know, real world use cases in the next couple of years. I actually want to ask a follow-up question there. Is there like a specific piece of legislature or like, because I've heard in, in in saying people are like, oh, Hong Kong's rolling out the red carpet. What does that mean? 
Like, does that mean they have quite favorable, you know, incentives to to go build something Web three oriented in Hong Kong? Is the government investing? What does that mean in practice? Yeah, so I think it 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 means that there are specific pieces of legislation that have been set forth allowing for you know retail trading and ownership of crypto, for instance. There are significant resources being put into the key regulatory you know, organizations to specifically imagine the SEC creating a department focused on digital assets to promote it, right? That's hard to imagine today, but that's exactly yes, but up to yeah, that's exactly the kind of thing that's happening within within Hong Kong. It's still in the, you know, stage of uh, you know, providing licenses for exchanges and and also, you know, growing out and deepening and maturing that regulatory function and oversight. But I'd say that the there's legislation overarching to really make sure that that is to make clear that, that is sort of what Hong Kong wants to do. We're seeing, you know, Vara and other folks, you know, in other jurisdictions doing similar things as well. But just I think it's I think when you kind of align the power and the infrastructure of a global financial center with that type of of policy support, it becomes something that is that that is quite that's it's quite unique globally, and and so therefore has really the the attention and focus a lot of the 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 major kind of growth companies that we're talking to within within the blockchain space. Awesome. Well, Homer, this has been great, highly insightful, and and you know your stuff. Where can people find you? Where can people learn more about what what you and Animoca? Are up to, and do you have any parting words for the audience? Yeah, no, we, you know, you can find us at uh, you know animoca capitalcom That's our that's our website, and we would love to to engage with you. We we do think that there is a a really interesting you know vintage and opportunity. As I mentioned, uh, a lot of folks are looking in places where there's a lot of there's high risk and high return, and you know a lot of great VCs, a lot of really smart people doing some some really fascinating investing. But, you know, as we think about our industry starting to mature, I think the type of investing that we look at and the kind of specialization we bring on to mature as well. And we hope to be in on the tip of that sphere working alongside the most influential companies in the world within within blockchain and crypto and Animoca brands and and really bringing differentiation to the market ultimately to create, you know, some really interesting portfolios where we can have Downside protected, you know, but you know, you know, high return, high DPI kind of opportunities to be leveraged to blockchain. Super excited about what's to come, and and Ben, really, really appreciate your, you know, doing this, doing Cena Studios, and all you do in the space. And thank you for having me on today. Awesome, it's a lot of fun. Thank you, Homer, and to everyone listening. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll catch you next time. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of Senior Studio. Please leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to podcasts if you love today's show. For more Senior's Capital content, check us out at seniorscapital.substack.com and shoot me a follow on Twitter, at Benny P. Jacobs. We'll see you next time.